Welcome to the Parkcast series, episode 40, part 2, Concurrent Disorders, Practice Implications for Child Welfare. The Parkcast series brings evidence-informed child welfare practice to life by highlighting literature reviews from the Particle Archives. This podcast builds on grounding knowledge and theory established in part 1 to provide the practitioner with field-relevant information on assessment and intervention when concurrent disorders are present. In part one of the Concurrent Disorders podcast, grounding theory, knowledge, and defining frameworks for concurrent disorders were discussed and contextualized in a child welfare context. Reviews of findings in the literature were then used to outline specific types of concurrent disorders, including symptomology and related risk factors. Readers are encouraged to review this podcast before moving ahead, as this second contribution builds on concepts that were expanded on in the first piece. One cannot effectively implement strategies to support their client without a full understanding of the theory and research behind an issue. Moving from learning to practice, the second part of the Concurrent Disorders podcast will discuss the topic in its practice context by first critically reviewing service-level challenges and initiatives before providing guidelines in assessment and intervention. The podcast ends by looking at special subpopulations in child welfare who are at particular risk of adverse outcomes when experiencing a concurrent disorder. Program and Service Design Lack of Services Part 1 of this podcast demonstrated the presence of concurrent disorders among youth involved in child welfare, adding impetus to the desired need for concurrent disorder-specific programming. The field response to this problem, however, has been sporadic at best. Henderson and colleagues found that less than 30% of service providers in a cross-sectoral sample of social service organizations report having a formal policy statement regarding services for concurrent disorders, despite a strong measured prevalence of clients meeting said criteria. Of those agencies that do have concurrent disorder-specific programming, the most frequently offered services were assessment, consultation, and case management, all on an outpatient basis. Overall, mental health services were significantly less likely to offer concurrent disorder services than addiction programs, making it difficult for someone receiving services for a substance use issue to access mental health support at the same time. Too often, either aspect of a current disorder is treated in isolation, sometimes in a linear, time-based fashion and without acknowledging the perpetuating relationship between both aspects of a person's life. This model is highly problematic for concurrent disorders and negates the close web of interconnectivity between various aspects of care. Integrating services. Researcher and practitioner focus is to provide effective and feasible concurrent disorder programs that are sensitive to high caseloads and improve integration and collaboration across providers. The margin for improvement in this area is large. Only 66% of service providers responding in the Henderson and colleagues study report having partnerships with cross-sectoral agencies. Furthermore, a little over half, 54%, reported frequent referrals to said agencies to meet the needs of youth with concurrent disorders. Though it may not be possible for a single agency to provide multiple services at the same time, It can be flexible by designing its programs to fit well with different yet co-related services being offered elsewhere. 
Youth with concurrent disorders are likely to be involved with multiple providers, and it is therefore imperative that agencies communicate with each other over streamlining a treatment experience. This can involve a simple connection between two practitioners or a caseworker, but also requires broad policy and service delivery changes that improve collaboration across multiple providers. This integrated focus would address substance use, trauma, and related effects concurrently, while allowing for increased knowledge exchange between programs. Under this framework, practitioners are given increased access to intra-agency services and can better navigate a system on behalf of a client or family. Thinking critically. Agency context. How does your agency define concurrent disorders? What language is used to describe youth with multiple co-occurring mental health and substance use issues? How does this language both benefit and hinder approaches to service? Assessment. Service frameworks. At the crux of a service model that values concurrent disorders is an emphasis on holistic treatment approaches that address the social determinants of health in clients. This same scope posits that practitioners beat the client where they are, within their developmental pathway, and further contextualize thoughts, emotions, and behaviors as a byproduct of their social environments. Thompson and Oslinder in 2011 explain how adolescents with concurrent disorders present at various stages of readiness for change, and how a harm reduction framework is well-suited to deliver the most effective and appropriate interventions. As well, treatment must not ignore any history of maltreatment. Considering the complex nature of stressful childhood experiences and their impact on the prevalence of substance abuse is crucial in a child welfare population. Early detection and intervention can help prevent or curtail substance abuse and related issues, such as delinquency, teen pregnancy, and depression. Detailed information on the relationship between maltreatment and concurrent disorders is discussed in Part 1 of this podcast. Assessment for Concurrent Disorders A proper assessment of the mental health and substance use issues that present in a case can help give the worker a more clear idea of how both aspects may affect a client. There are different options when assessing for a concurrent disorder, though low reports of use of standardized screening tools and youth-based services indicate that workers may not have the time or proper skills training to conduct a comprehensive assessment. However, enhancing the understanding of clinical issues related to youth with concurrent disorders does help close this gap in knowledge. As a general rule, child welfare workers should not automatically assume that a substance use disorder is present after discovering a mental health or behavioral issue, and vice versa. Once a concurrent disorder has been acknowledged, a worker must make an effort to explore other issues behind both aspects of the disorder. The assessment period should be considered ongoing rather than a singular event at the beginning of treatment, as a concurrent disorder is privy to change over time, and it is important that a practitioner keep track of these shifts in health. In the print format of this literature review, you can find a reference diagram to list important aspects of an assessment for a concurrent disorder, which are provided as a general guideline. Wherever possible, workers need to gain a better understanding of the interrelatedness of a concurrent disorder, including the mediating effects that a mental health issue and substance use issue have on each other. This understanding can be a complicated endeavor, 
as each concurrent disorder will have different effects on a client, and symptoms of either can mimic, mask, trigger, or exacerbate one another. Standardized scales such as the SERPs can assist in measuring mental health and behavioral aspects within their relationship to a substance use disorder. Some common questions to help draw out the relationship of each component of a concurrent disorder include, which aspect predated the other? Did mental health symptoms develop during substance abuse intoxication or withdrawal? What happens to the client's symptoms during abstinence? Methods matter. A standardized scale measures specific behaviors, cognitions, moods, or attitudes by using a uniform singular rating system that can be applied in the same way across different people. The mark of a higher quality standardized scale is obtaining reliability and or validity. Reliability is the testing of whether or not a scale or assessment yields consistent information over a period of time. Validity refers to an instrument's ability to actually measure what it intends to measure. These variables are typically tested over diverse populations on a time scale to assess if a tool meets proper reliability and validity requirements. The Substance Use Risk Profile Scale, or SERPs, is a practice-friendly assessment tool that uses multiple measurement scales to identify key issues related to problematic drinking. The tool has been tested on adolescents and child welfare and is discussed as being reliable and valid, providing an effective way to identify risks and determine appropriate interventions for this population. This is because SERPs looks at behavior and risk without requiring client disclosure of substance use, something that a youth may not be ready to discuss. SERPs can also be used to determine risk before substance use begins, leading to interventions that are behavior-specific. Thinking critically. Practitioner wisdom. How does your experience with concurrent disorders influence the way you work with complex cases in child welfare? Do you have biases that may change the way you assess this population? What measures can be built into an assessment that help with keeping it objective? Interventions Clinical treatment Some clinical treatment options for youth with concurrent disorders have been discussed in various domains of research. Recent evidence suggests that motivational enhancement and cognitive behavioral approaches can help though these studies did not include a child welfare-specific sample. An alcohol treatment program that incorporated these interventions and included specific personality factors into treatment plans was shown to decrease binge drinking rates, general quantity, and frequency of alcohol use in adolescents in the U.S. school system. McCambridge and Strang in 2004 explained how the employment of brief motivational interventions and use of cognitive behavioral strategies can target a client's stage of readiness. This is important for adolescents who may not yet be ready to fully commit to an intensive treatment regimen. Further studies provide the efficacy of this intervention with reducing alcohol, marijuana, and tobacco use among adolescents. Family-based therapy has also been proven as an effective treatment where appropriate. Family interaction therapy has been studied to help examine the role of family and non-family relationships in adolescent substance abuse while looking at healthy adolescent characteristics. 
This intervention can also be used under a context of certain histories of child maltreatment. Unraveling the family dynamic also provides a practitioner with a more nuanced idea of how a familial system may influence mental health and substance use behavior. Non-clinical service considerations. Despite the prevalence of research studying youth with concurrent disorders, non-clinical services are less common in programs serving this population. Such non-clinical therapeutic interventions require broader uptake from child welfare workers and services alike. One example of a non-clinical intervention involves exposure to alternative ways to manage PTSD through physical exercise and meditation. Studies have shown that physical exercise also has a positive mediating effect on symptoms related to depression in youth and can lower substance use. Gleeboard and colleagues describe how engaging in extracurricular activities gives youth a sense of purpose and self-worth while providing the opportunity to make healthy relationships outside of the home. It also provides a positive channel to vent emotional frustrations. This exposure to social situations helps youth focus on activities that they were involved in before child welfare involvement, therefore giving them a sense of permanency. As mentioned in Part 1 of this podcast series, child welfare workers who work with youth who have concurrent disorders should seriously consider HIV prevention initiatives. Adolescents in this category are particularly vulnerable to HIV, and any intervention should address HIV risk behavior. These interventions must be sensitive to social contexts, ethnic and cultural factors, sexual orientation, and cognitive and emotional aspects of adolescence. Specific attention on this issue should be directed at females in foster care who are at increased risk of HIV risk behavior. These interventions should address the perceived invulnerability to HIV held in this subpopulation and work on motivation regarding behavior change. Thinking critically. Case context. Choosing the right intervention means understanding the link between work done in a therapeutic environment and positive outcomes for clients. Can you think of any case scenarios where one of the interventions listed below might have adverse effects on a child or family? What aspects of the case context might deem a specific intervention inappropriate? Special populations. Transition-aged youth. Literature on concurrent disorders and child welfare highlights youth aging out of care as a particularly vulnerable subpopulation. Though rates of substance use disorders and mental health concerns in older youth in foster care are high when compared to the general population, fewer services are available for this group. Most programs serving youth with concurrent disorders are aimed at lower age categories, specifically 12 to 18-year-olds, while services for transitioning young adults are sparse. This gap in services partially explains why transition-aged youth with concurrent disorders are more likely to experience negative outcomes in adulthood when compared to their non-concurrent disorder counterparts. Clinicians and child welfare workers can help prevent adult-onset negative outcomes in this group by firstly gaining a broader understanding of the severity and prevalence of mental health and substance use problems in their transition-aged clients. Illicit drug use is more common during this period, and practitioners should respond by giving greater attention to this aspect of care. 
substance use is easily exacerbated by the stress caused during transitions out of the system and can therefore have long-lasting effects on mental health and behavioral outcomes. Bolstering programs that target transition-aged youth would help in responding to the increasing rates of concurrent disorders in this population, but beyond the issue of basic support lies the need for specific strategies to prevent further substance use and mental health issues as this group emerges into early adulthood. This includes plans for navigating the mental health and addiction systems, ongoing casework, service continuity into adulthood, and support with housing and education. Engaging with transitioned-aged youth over problems that are unique to this period of development provides timely and appropriate care that extends the base of support into adulthood. Youth in Independent Living Special concerns about youth with concurrent disorders and independent living appear in some child welfare literature. Youth are often placed in this setting because of challenging behavioral and mental health issues and are therefore more prone to developing a concurrent substance use disorder. A concurrent disorder is then exacerbated by an increased freedom and opportunity for this population to participate in these activities. When comparing youth in independent living to those in therapeutic foster care, Baker and colleagues found a much greater prevalence of behavioral problems and substance use abuse in the former. This included suicidal ideation, psychiatric hospitalization, anxiety, depression, aggression, and internalizing and externalizing behavior. Of note, marijuana was measured as a common drug of choice for youth with a concurrent disorder in independent living, and use was significantly increased when coupled with a conduct disorder. Youth and independent living require intensive professional services directed toward behavioral and mental health problems. Staff and workers tending to this population must assume that increased care is required when youth are placed in this environment. Shifts between independent living and the community must take this increased marginalization into account, and any treatment or intervention must be sensitive to the living situation and any external demands, such as terms of probation or school-related responsibilities, of this population. Caregivers Caregivers play an important role in the psychosocial outcomes of youth with concurrent disorders. Parents and caregivers who model substance abuse can trigger emotional and physical problems that put children at higher risk of adverse conditions, while parent substance abuse is related to different types of maltreatment, which is a major precursor to developing a concurrent disorder in adolescence and youth. Conversely, positive caregiver relationships that supplant previous damaging caregiver relationships are a protective factor. As a supportive environment that includes the influence of a stable and nurturing adult is known to help prevent future substance use for children involved in child welfare services. Wherever possible, child welfare workers should seek out the development of a positive caregiver relationship, both as a protective and preventative measure and as part of an intervention strategy. These positive relationships can also be sought outside of the home. Remaining in school and establishing bonds with adult educators was associated with lower externalizing behaviors and substance abuse in a sample of youth who had experienced sexual and physical abuse in childhood. Such studies surface the pivotal role of healthy modeling and caregiver relationships for this population. Thinking critically. Client preferences. 
What unique client preferences might surface when working with a youth belonging to a special subpopulation in child welfare? How can these preferences be integrated into a concurrent disorder treatment plan? Conclusion Both parts of this podcast series were designed to eliminate relationships between multiple issues of a single case in child welfare. Under the development of a holistic concurrent disorder model, we understand that this concept is actually a framework of care and not just a definitive term. By viewing complicated cases through a concurrent disorder lens, practitioners can connect the dots across multiple issues and treat for the relationships between them. Child welfare has been slow to formalize this model in the research, and though early studies are helping us learn about concurrent disorders within this context, further work is to be done. Testing appropriate interventions and learning about vulnerable subpopulations will be crucial stepping stones to a more robust knowledge base on this topic. Practitioners are encouraged to consult the evidence-informed practice EIP model before making any decision on a case. Information in this podcast provides important research knowledge that is intended to be used in consideration with client preferences, practitioner wisdom, and case context. Key Summary Points Ongoing assessments for youth with concurrent disorders provide important measures on changes in health over time. Assessments should focus on the relationship between multiple issues, including perpetuating factors, self-medicating tendencies, and onset of mental health and substance use problems. Concurrent disorders require concurrent treatment. Addressing multiple issues at the same time helps to establish a web of interconnectivity for a client and practitioner and draws on the relationships between different thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. This approach is further supported by integrating interventions and being collaborative whenever possible. Concurrent disorders will affect separate subpopulations within child welfare differently. Symptoms arising from concurrent disorders are byproducts of a person's socialization and environment. Contextualizing a case based on these factors is an important step in designing an appropriate intervention. You have been listening to the Parkcast series, Episode 40, Part 2, Concurrent Disorders, Practice Implications for Child Welfare. At parkcanada.org, you can access part one of this episode, Understanding Concurrent Disorders, as well as literature reviews in print format in the Particles Library. The Parkcast series is produced by Practice and Research Together, a membership-based organization that promotes the understanding and use of evidence-informed practice at all levels of the child welfare system. For more information about and additional resources on this episode's topic, the Parkcast series, or Practice and Research Together, please visit www.parkcanada.org.